From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, March 19th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, a lethal attack on a Jewish school in Toulouse and how France is reacting to the shooting. Also, a humanitarian convoy on the Syria-Turkey border does what it can for rebels inside Syria. Moral support obviously is huge. We don't want that fire to not burn anymore. And later, a Jordanian cartoonist draws the Arab Spring. One of my cartoons was basically young people's hands holding the Facebook F just like a gun. And so it's rebels in arms. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There is shock, grief, and fear that a serial killer is on the loose today in southern France. This morning, a lone gunman opened fire at a Jewish school in the southern French city of Toulouse. A teacher, his two sons, and a third child were killed. Officials say the gunman used two guns, and he then fled on a motorcycle or a scooter. One of the guns was reportedly also used in two similar shootings in the region in the past eight days. Those killed in the earlier attacks were soldiers of North African or Caribbean descent. French President Nicolas Sarkozy visited the school where today's shooting took place. La barbarie, la sauvagerie, la cruauté ne peuvent pas gagner. La haine ne peut pas gagner. The barbarity, the savagery, the cruelty cannot win. Hate cannot win. The nation is much stronger. Tomorrow, all the schools in France will observe a minute's silence to honor the children of this school. They are our children. They aren't just others' children. They are ours. We will do absolutely everything possible to find the person who did this. Sarkozy visited the school in Toulouse with Richard Prasquier. He is the president of CRIF, which is an umbrella group representing Jewish organizations in France. We caught up with Prasquier after he returned to Paris from Toulouse. Well, uh, I went to the school with the president, Nicolas Sarkozy, who changed his schedule and who, who flied to, um, to Toulouse. And so we saw, the, we, 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 we saw the people, they were in shock. And um, it's uh, horrible. You can imagine there is, a, there is a woman who lost her husband and who lost two of her children. Did people specifically, I don't know if you sought anybody out or if people sought you out, given your position to talk to you, what, what, just give us a little bit more of what it was like to be there. Well, you know, people don't want to speak at that time. They say it, was, it is terrible. It is, uh, and they are really in a state of shock. And, uh, but uh, I think it was necessary for us to be there and to be present with the community, with the local community. Uh, and... Uh, I think the, the, this was summarized when Nicolas Sarkozy said this is a national tragedy. And I think we have to really think about it as a national tragedy. It's a tragedy for the entire French population. Whenever a Jew is attacked, it's the French Republic that is under attack. 
not an event that uh, only targets Jews, it targets also the, our democracy and our republic. It's tough to draw any kind of conclusions right now about the motivation. So how do you, as the head of this French-Jewish umbrella group of organizations, proceed then? I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine that choosing this school was a random uh, random choice because there are very few Jewish schools in the area. And so it's, uh, there is... Uh, for me, there is no question that he knew that he was in a Jewish school and he wanted to, to kill Jewish uh, children. Although, how, so do you, yeah, how do you discern, at this point anyway, before there's any, any suspect, whether or not that was a provocation? And we should say this, this feeds into much of the discussion that's going on in France right now. I, I, I don't know more about it. I know among the three soldiers that were killed, two of these three soldiers were North African, were Muslim, and the third one was... Uh, from West Indies was black. Um, so whether this is a racist who uh, killed some uh, uh, some Muslim one day, or some black one day, and who, one, and, uh, who killed some Jews in the other day, it's maybe it's a possibility. Whether this is a protest, that's the, the fact that France is uh, fighting with the coalition in Afghanistan, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. These are some of the hypotheses that can be brought up and Mr. Prosky, thank you very much. Thank you. Richard Prosquier is president of CRIF, a group representing French Jewish organizations. The shootings in Toulouse come as France prepares for a presidential election next month. Both President Sarkozy and his main challenger, socialist leader François Hollande, went to Toulouse today. Pierre Aski is co-founder of the French political analysis website called Rue 89 or 89. He says that so far, the candidates have been careful not to politicize the school shooting. They've all announced that they were suspending their election campaign to go down to Toulouse and be next to the victims and their relatives. And they have tried not to add any inflammatory statements to an already tense situation. So uh, for the moment, there has been no attempt to add anything to, to the situation. And the notable exception is, is obviously Marine Le Pen, the far right candidate who has not commented and has been very absent from the scene. What's the significance of that? Well, Marine Le Pen has been campaigning very much about too many foreigners in the country, too many immigrants. Islam is taking uh, too big space in the French society. So at the time when the targets of these killings are French people of uh, Muslim or other immigrant community or Jews. Obviously, people on on the far right would be the prime suspects, if not acting, at least inciting some elements into action. And and that's why she has cancelled her campaign meetings and has not made public appearances in Toulouse, contrary to other main candidates in the election campaign. But anti-immigrant sentiment, not that that, uh, all these uh, victims were immigrants, but those issues have been among the incendiary arguments made in the campaigns. Definitely, there has been a a deterioration of the climate in France in, in recent weeks with immigration, Islam and community 
cooperation and cohabitation being at the center of the election campaign. There's been uh, numerous uh, statements, both from Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, but also from the outgoing president, Nicolas Sarkozy, which have added to tensions around these issues. But at this stage, some of the elements of the investigation into these killings point, for example, to uh, former army people from this region who have been ejected from the army because of neo-Nazi sympathies. So this would be totally disconnected from the election campaign and would be more in tune with troubles within the army and troubles within a a very, very extremist uh, wing of the society. The context overall, I wonder if you can say, since you are a longtime journalist there, what your reaction was when you heard about the shootings and whether or not you see this as a departure, the discussions around immigration and the shootings themselves as a departure for your country? Or is this something that uh, does not come as that much of a surprise? It did come as a surprise because of the violent nature. And there's been very few incidents with firearm in France. But my first reaction when I heard about it was to think about the Oslo killing uh, last summer in Norway, when a lone killer who had extreme right-wing views plan in very cold blood the mass killing of dozens of uh, youths in connection with what he felt was the foreign invasion of his country. And I, I thought maybe that's what's happening in, in our country too, that the public debate with a lot of inflammatory words being used could have led some maybe disturbed minds to move into action. And for the moment, we don't have facts to sustain that. But if that's true, then I think politicians will have to do a lot of soul searching about what happened during the past few years in France. Pierre Aski, co-founder of the French political analysis website Rue 89, or Street 89. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. There was new violence in Syria today. Gunfire was reported in an upscale neighborhood of the capital, Damascus. Syrian state-run TV said four people died. Also today, the Red Cross and Russia called on the Syrian government and its opponents to agree to observe daily two-hour ceasefires. The Red Cross says that would help its efforts to take humanitarian aid to conflict zones. Delivering humanitarian aid is precisely what a caravan of Syrian activists attempted to do this past weekend. The caravan tried to enter Syria from Turkey. Reporter Matthew Brunwasser spoke with some of the activists in southern Turkey. There's no one for miles around this muddy field near the Turkish-Syrian border to hear anything. But that didn't stop the 300 activists from singing Damn You Hafez about the father of Bashar al-Assad and founder of Ba'ath Party rule in Syria. Syrian-born Anas Nader came with a group from London. The concept is a bunch of Syrians from around the world coming together in a convoy with uh, humanitarian aid and trying to get them into Syria. Um, The idea is to try to break the siege on the, the Syrian cities. Right now we have mainly uh, food, baby milk, medications, uh, basically bandages and painkillers and that kind of medications, basic care packages uh, for the people of Syria, uh, whether they're injured civilians or even um, just uh, food aid for for, for the starving families and kids. There are two convoys, one here near Syria's northern border, another from Jordan in the south. 
The isolated location of this protest could be seen as symptomatic of the impractical nature of the activists' fight. But a woman calling herself Syriana Jihad, who's lived in Turkey for 15 years, is confident that eventually their message will get out and that the aid will get through to those who need it in Syria. We're really very persistent. Uh, we feel very, um, psychologically, I mean, we're very high. And we believe 100% that we will be victorious. A year after the uprising that began in Dara, things are not going well for anti-government forces. The rebel-free Syrian army is on the run following a major army offensive in the north. Civilians are unable to escape the besieged city of Idlib, and reports are emerging of massacres and massive destruction by the Syrian military. Again, Syriana Jihad. So it's, it's a matter of feeling sad. In the same time, I think it's, it's pushing us to be more strong and to be more unified and to focus on our purpose for free and civil Syria. About a third of the crowd were refugees living in camps in Turkey. But others came from far away, hoping that the closer they got to Syria, the more they could support the struggle. Ibrahim Basha came from Detroit, where he's a student at Wayne State University. Even though there is little practical help the activists here can provide in Syria, he says their presence helps. Moral support obviously is huge. We don't want that fire to not burn anymore. People over there have been doing this for a year and have continued to do so uh, with all the killing and, you know, arrests. And they're still going strong. So if it's going to take 300 people over here to give them that extra push or whatnot, you know, we should continue to do that. Uh, because what they're doing over there on the inside is very courageous and brave. So we're just trying to do our little part to help. It didn't come as much of a surprise when the Syrian authorities refused permission for the convoy to cross into Syria. So the Red Crescent took over the aid and said it would try to deliver it to Syria or else distribute it to refugees in the camps in Turkey. This latest convoy was the third attempt in the past year, and it most likely won't be the last. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Kilis, Turkey. Check out pictures of the activists chanting slogans, dancing, and waving Syrian flags. There's a slideshow at theworld.org. Later on The World, Dame Edna and her wig say so long. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Drawing cartoons about current events in the Middle East is no easy task, especially as the region goes through the convulsions of the Arab Spring. Jordanian cartoonist Ahmad Hajjaj says for him, these are the best of times and the worst of times. The world's Matthew Bell met him at his studio in Jordan's capital, Amman. When immovable dictators in Tunisia and Egypt were ousted from power by their own people a year ago, it was a surreal moment for Emad Hajjaj. 
He'd been doing editorial cartoons about Arab politics for 20 years, and all of a sudden, the impossible was actually happening. One of my cartoons was basically young people's hands holding the Facebook F just like a gun, huh? and the Twitter T just like a gun, and so it's rebels in arms. Uh, they are not holding guns, actually. They are holding uh, new tools that they can make a change that we waited for decades to happen. But as things developed, Hajjaj says, in Libya and especially in Syria, the feeling of euphoria wore off. The task of commenting on daily news events in the Arab world got more complicated, and they required a new approach. We have a saying in Arabic, المبكي, the funny things that make you cry, or black comedy maybe. There is some humor in it. Even with Syria, Hajaz says, the people of Homs, for example, are famous for their sense of humor. In Arabic, Homsi people are said to have light blood. So as the people of that city were subjected to a brutal assault by the forces of Bashar al-Assad in recent weeks, Hajaj called attention to the irony here with a depiction of the Syrian dictator. I made Bashar al-Assad uh, dressing just like Dracula and having that big glass of blood. And he says, yes, Hamsi people uh, do have light blood. <laughs> He's drinking their blood. <laughs> so, so this was the cartoon. <laughs> it's not easy for an Arabic cartoonist to navigate the treacherous realities of Arab culture and politics, says Daoud Kutab. He's a journalist and media commentator himself, also based in Amman. Kutab says Imad Hajjaj is successful because he's clever and courageous. For example, he's managed to challenge the taboo against drawing Arab leaders in cartoons. I think Islamic culture and society has forbidden images. So an Islam image is not supposed to be drawn. Also, I think there is a false understanding that if you put somebody as a cartoon character, it means you're making fun of him. And it's seen as an insult. The division between the personal and the public is not very well understood. Imad Hajjaj says understanding is what he's all about. He wants to use his work to reach out across the Arab world and beyond. He says he's proud to have gained some attention in the West, but breaking taboos also means making people angry. For example, Hajjaj says there was the series of bombings in 2005 in downtown Amman that were attributed to al-Qaeda. I did many, many cartoons condemning these attacks and criticizing al-Qaeda. So I get many, many uh, angry emails and uh, threatening emails. Threatening you? Yes. Yani, uh, stop drawing about al-Qaeda yani, you, or you'll be killed or our guys will reach you, something like this. Hajjaj says it's important to break the stereotype that Arabic commentators only criticize Israel and the United States, though these are two of his favorite targets. Hajjaj has been accused of anti-Semitism. He denies the charge. He says his cartoons from the Israeli offensive in Gaza three years ago did indeed depict Israeli leaders as war criminals. It is not anti-Semitism. It is criticism of war criminals people who are responsible of killing children. And somebody had to say something about them. When you look at the Western media, they are yani, very, let me say, delicate in criticizing Israel. Somebody had to be blunt sometimes. Hajjaj says it's also important to keep up a dialogue. He says he's taken part in many discussions with Israeli and Western cartoonists about how to avoid tired negative stereotypes on all sides and to learn from each other. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Amman.
Check out some of those cartoons Imad Hajjaj was describing, along with a video of him drawing one of them. It's all at theworld.org. Artists in Ireland are using their work to express their frustration over the country's ongoing financial crisis. Over this past weekend, 28 artists mounted their paintings on the side of a half-finished bank building in Dublin. They called it a guerrilla art exhibit, and they dubbed it Romantic Ireland from the Streets. One of the artists involved is Connor Casby of Dublin. Connor, how come you and the other artists converged on this particular building, or maybe we should say more accurately, this shell of a building? How come? Because the building itself is the shell of the proposed Anglo-Irish Bank building, which was in the process of being built as the headquarters for the Anglo-Irish Bank. That particular bank is really at the centre of everything that went wrong financially in Ireland over the last 20 years. And so why choose to have this kind of movement of guerrilla art and and why do it on St. Patrick's Day weekend in particular? Yeah, well, I suppose we're just trying to provoke a discussion. In Ireland, I'm not sure, are you aware, but we had a crash similar, to I think, there in the US. But in Ireland, what happened essentially was that these people gambled on investment when their gamble didn't pay off, the government decided to pay them back anyway. And we weren't asked permission for that. There was no referendum. There was nothing. We weren't involved, I suppose, in what was essentially the decision to give away our taxes. It's kind of drawing attention to that fact that there has been a breakdown in communication between the Irish people as taxpayers and the government who have given away their money. So your own painting that you contributed to this, that you mounted on the side of this building, or partial building anyway, what what was it? It was a picture of the current Pope to go along with the line, but little time had they to pray. This is the the poem by W.B. Yeats, September 1913. That's where you took the line from. We should say, by yes. the way, that we're going to have a video of the art, but also the words to the poem itself online at theworld.org. So what did your painting look like? My picture is a picture of the Pope there's a silhouetted against the Pope is a picture of Jim Larkin, who was one of the protagonists in the poem uh, September 1913 by W.B. Yeats. That poem is about what's called in Ireland the 1913 lockout, where a businessman in the city, rather than negotiate with the union for uh, you know better play for the employers, locked people out of his companies and starved them into submission. It became a watershed in Irish history in terms of, you know, union negotiation. And it was the last time that something like that could really happen in Ireland. Connor, just one more thing. Since it was uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend, I wonder if you come from that kind of ideology and, and questions about Irish identity, if you're the kind of person who can mount this uh, exhibit or at least be part of the exhibit on the one hand, and on the other hand, go over to the St. Patrick's Day parade and celebrate Irishness and all that's yeah. Kelly Green and... yeah. Know, I didn't actually go to the parade this year because I was busy, you know, doing our own celebration. But I mean, it was an act of protest, but it's also, it's an act of celebration, a celebration of a community of artists who did all this for free. And it was a celebration of W.B. Yeats' poem. I think that's an integral part of being Irish. And I suppose it's why I'm proud to be an Irishman still. Nice to talk to you, artist Connor Casby. His work is, at least for now, among the art that is mounted on the skeleton of a building in Dublin that was to be the headquarters of the Anglo-Irish Bank. We've got a YouTube video of the art. You can see it on our website at theworld.org. Connor, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. You too. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, coming up, talking to 8th graders about the Coney 2012 video. If you're deceiving people, it's, you know, it, I don't think that it's really okay. And you could say that the ends justify the means, but I think that you really need to draw a line in the sand. Fact and fiction in storytelling, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Kony 2012 is still going strong. The video about the Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony has gotten 83 million hits on YouTube since it was posted two weeks ago. It's generated a lot of controversy for being oversimplified and inaccurate. The video is designed to get young Americans to care about a distant conflict, the case of Joseph Coney, who's accused of abducting tens of thousands of children and turning them into soldiers. The world's Jason Margolis talked to some young Americans at an eighth-grade history class at the Cambridge Friends School, a private school in Massachusetts, to find out what students there think of the film and its message. Have a seat, mateys. Nearly all of the students in Darcy Hoyt's classroom were familiar with the Coney 2012 video. Several had already seen it. It was the top video on YouTube, and a lot of the time, like, I browse around YouTube, you know. For the students who hadn't yet seen the 30-minute video, Hoyt played it in class. Who are you to end a war? I'm here to tell you, who are you not to? Here's the gist of the movie. Jason Russell, a 30-something filmmaker in San Diego, shares a first-person account of his visits to Africa and his activism back home. The film is really about Campbell and his efforts to raise awareness about Joseph Kony, and less about Kony himself. And the classroom discussion was much more about the film and the filmmakers than about problems in Africa. The way the video is, it totally gets you in the sense of, wow, I could be part of something bigger. The film and the cause is so inspiring because it's so reachable to us. It's very hypey. It's, it's got solid color, smooth lines. These students have been studying propaganda from World War II, so they were ready to take a critical look at the film. They were both inspired and turned off by it. Take this scene where the filmmaker talks to his young son, Gavin. Can I tell you the bad guy's name? Yeah. This is the guy, Joseph Coney. He's the bad guy? Yeah. Did it seem self-indulgent to anybody that he had that whole thing about his son? And yes. he yeah. interviewed yes. his son and had him do it? I understand, like, the main message, but could he have done that on a more global sense? Like, that seemed pretty self-indulgent. So why do you use his son? To make it seem personal. These are real people, like, working on this cause. I, like... I'm telling this to my son that really makes it real. I really felt it was really kind of creepy that he was just saying, like, to his son. He just sat his son down and said, this is the bad guy. This is the good guy. The students also had lots of questions about the finances behind Invisible Children, the organization that produced the film. The movie asked viewers to buy a $30 action kit, a poster, bracelets, stickers, and a T-shirt. The website says by buying the kit, quote, People will think you're an advocate of awesome. On April 20th, everyone is supposed to put up their Coney 2012 posters to raise awareness. 
I'd really like to do something, but I'm not. I'm not sure how to do it because buy a poster. I know. No, but I'm, I'm not going to buy a poster from this company because I've heard t- plenty of people cast doubt on what um, what they're going to do, and I feel like it isn't. If I really want to do something rather than just spreading this message, right? I should find someone who I'm who I know is actually going to help. Not not someone who I think is just gonna try and sell tchotchkes about the movement to other supporters. Still, the students debated whether they should buy a poster for the classroom. There seemed to be a conflict. They didn't trust the filmmaker's organization, Invisible Children, but they didn't want to totally reject the message of the film. That is, stop Joseph Coney. One student said he knew the film was deceptive in some ways, but it was raising awareness for a good cause. He struggled with the question. Is that okay? If you're deceiving people, it's, you know, it, I don't think that it's really okay. And you could say that the ends justify the means, but I think that you really need to draw a line in the sand. The problem that he and many others are grappling with is where is that line? For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Another news story has raised similar questions. It is the admission by storyteller Mike Daisy that he lied about some of his work researching Apple Computer's production practices in China. Daisy did a one-man play about the subject, The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. It was based in part on those lies. For perspective on both controversies, we turn now to Jack Schaefer. He's a media and political columnist for Reuters. We asked Schaefer what he would say to somebody like that eighth grader we heard from a minute ago speaking about the Coney 2012 video. Again, the student said, if you're deceiving people, I don't think it's okay, but you can say the ends justify the means. You need to draw a line in the sand. Well, here's Jack Schaefer. Well, I think that if they're going to talk about the ends justifying the means, they have to explore that all the way to the end. And the ends that here that are justified, that, that are being used to justify, are that you can um, you can exaggerate. You can get facts wrong. You can appeal to people's emotions, and I think that the, the long-term effect of this is the same long-term effect that you know eighth graders have to commercials. They see that they're being sold a bill of goods, even if you know even if the commercial is about eating healthy. They they recognize that they're being manipulated. They're not being encouraged to think rationally. They're, they're being directed to ta- uh, think emotionally. And uh, I think that's the ultimate um, refutation I would give an eighth, eighth, eighth grader. So do you see, for instance, the Jason Russell Coney 2012 um, video or the Mike Daisy monologue and stories as selling a bill of goods? I mean, did, did these guys, in your view, do anything wrong given that they were focused on the goal of raising awareness about sure. some very important cases and incidents? Sure. In the Coney uh, 2012 case, they've produced not a documentary but a fundraising video. It's essentially a commercial designed to sell action kits and bracelets. And it's deceiving people. And I think what that does, it corrupts any potential trust that there could be between individuals, you know, the audience and, and the, uh, the organization. In the, in the case of Mike Daisy, he's not trying to make money, I don't think. Um, but he, what he is trying to do is um, excite people, involve people, by telling them, you know, a whole host of lies. 
and I think that that there has to be some sort of trust between the the message provider and the and the listener. And here he's clearly violating that trust. Is there not, though, in your view at all, a, a greater good that's going on here? Because you know as well as as we do here at the world about how difficult it can be to draw attention, especially to ongoing events and tragic events internationally. It's a really tough thing to do just to get people's attention. These guys were telling stories. Much, but not all, of what they said was true. Is not the cause worth what they were doing if it's drawing attention to uh, some very serious issues? I don't think so. I mean, the New York Times did a big, big feature about Apple in China, and um, there will be no blowback from that article because it appears to stand up completely. Um, and I would just direct you back to my original uh, answer: is that when when you deceive to do good, the long term effect is, I think, evil. The emotional manipulation, um, lies, uh, distortion of truth, exaggeration, all of that, is that made, do you think, more possible by social media? I wouldn't think so. I think that it's, um, it's part of human nature. People uh, tend to want to uh, cut corners, um, take advantage of other people. Uh, you know, the, the confidence man has been with us as long as we've been walking on two legs and maybe before. Um, so, no, I wouldn't blame it on, on social media. You blame it on what? Human nature. I mean, the, the, take, about, take our profession of journalism. You know, we find liars and plagiarists and, and unethical actors in our newsroom all the time in a place where you're supposed to observe the, you know, the highest standards. And, you know, I, the best explanation I can come to is that, you know, people are flawed and they cut corners and they deliver shoddy work when they think they can get away with it. Jack Schaefer is media and political columnist for Reuters. Nice to talk with you. Happy to be with you. For more of our coverage on Joseph Coney and the controversial viral video Coney 2012, just head to theworld.org and be sure to join our ongoing conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at PRI The World. What do you do when your school budget is slashed and your enrollment is dwindling? That was the dilemma facing the town of Millinocket, Maine. So the school superintendent came up with an idea to bring revenue and fill the halls. He decided to recruit high school exchange students from China. The plan was to bring in 60 students. The first year, only three came. It's been a learning experience for the town and for the three Chinese exchange students who made the journey, Grace, Lulu, and Dennis. Reporter Ashley Cleek has their story. The state road into Millinocket runs past two grocery stores, a few seasonal motels, and a subway restaurant. It's not really the image foreign high school students have of the U.S. You know a gossip girl? Yeah, I like that. That's Grace. She's 17. Before coming to Millinocket, most of what Grace knew about high school in the U.S. came from TV shows like Gossip Girl. I just know big city, New York, and Washington. Grace and the other Chinese students, Dennis and Lulu, all come from relatively wealthy families. They have iPhones and laptops. Dennis's father works for the government and has some negative opinions about education in China. Chinese education gives too much press to his students. Dennis says his father thinks Chinese schools put too much pressure on students and don't prepare them for the modern world. So he sent Dennis to Stearns High School in rural Maine. Dennis wants to be a businessman, so he signed up for a class called Personal Finance, a mashup of economics and career prep. What's a different emotion that might be as important to control in a business environment? Temper. 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 
Dennis says his friends back home in China only take classes like biology, chemistry, and calculus. And they go to weekend and evening cram sessions to prepare for the dreaded Gao Kao. It's a grueling two-day college entrance exam. When Dennis talks about it, he shifts nervously on his feet. He does not want to take this test. I choose to come to America, so it also means I'm not going to take that test. But you're smiling when you say that. Mm-hmm. Like you're happy that you're uh, Yes. In some waves, yeah. The plan is for Dennis to go to an American college. At least that's the pitch Millinocket Superintendent Kenneth Smith makes to parents in China. We'll do the best we can to not only educate your child for the one year, but also to get your child into a college in the United States. Smith has made numerous trips to China to talk up Stearns and Millinocket. He praises Maine's environment, its clean water and air. But Smith also had to sell Millinocket on the Chinese students. The town's almost entirely white, and some people express concern at town meetings about an influx of Chinese, even though only three students ultimately came. Dennis, Grace, and Lulu say they haven't been bullied or teased here. But Dennis's host mom, Lorene Krauss, is still protective of him. She says when Dennis tried to wear a fanny pack on the first day of school, she advised against it. He had a pink umbrella. I wouldn't let him take his pink umbrella. We told him not, not here. We tell him certain things that, so he doesn't get made fun of. Okay, couple really important things to remember. Like Dennis, Lulu has picked some electives. Her favorite is foods, a sort of boiled-down home economics. Today, the class is going over a cheesecake recipe. Avoid overbeating the batter. Lulu, listen to this one, because when you get that electric mixer going, you love to mix and mix and mix and mix. Lulu's English is remedial, and she's never really cooked before. So she writes everything out carefully. The class finishes up about 20 minutes early, and the students are allowed to go to the library. That would never happen back home, says Grace. Grace says that in China, she went to school at 6 a.m. and came home around 7 at night. She had tons of homework, so after dinner and then more homework, she went to bed and then woke up to do it all over again. Now, she says, I have tons of free time. And that's not always welcome. There's not much to do in Millinocket. The closest movie theater is 65 miles away. On Friday nights, kids mostly hang out in the grocery store parking lot. Grace, Dennis, and Lulu say they sometimes get bored and a little homesick. Still, they're all determined to return to China speaking fluent English. They're struggling with it now, but they think it'll give them an edge in their careers. Lulu says her goal is to go home after college to help her parents with their textile business. She says her language skills would help them increase orders. Before she goes to college, though, Lulu has to find another high school. She and Dennis are juniors. They're here on an F-1 student visa that limits them to one year public high school. Dennis and his host mom are investigating nearby private schools. He says he wants to stay in Maine for his senior year. I like to going out for fun. I don't know, maybe I'm more suitable for American style. As for Grace, she's been accepted into the University of Maine at Orno for next fall. Grace wants to be a journalist, and U of M has a program. It's not quite the prestigious university in Boston that her father had in mind, but it's a start and not too far from Millinocket. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek, Millinocket, Maine.
For our GeoQuiz today, we're tracking a ship called the Maud. Maud is a famous three-masted vessel. It's named after Norway's Queen Maud. Norwegian explorer Rald Amundsen used the ship during his second Arctic expedition to reach the North Pole. The historic ship was abandoned. It sprang a leak and sank at its moorings back in 1930. And there it sits, submerged in the chilly waters of Cambridge Bay in northern Canada. Now, after a long legal battle, a Canadian court has cleared the way for Maud to return to the shipyards in Norway, where she was built. We want to know where in Norway that is. It is a village on the outskirts of Oslo that's become a haven for Norwegian celebrities. It's also got a great view of the Oslo Fjord. We will get the answer in just over a minute. It's also on the way on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. She is body, gaudy, and boisterous. She's Dame Edna Everidge, the lilac wig-wearing character created by Australian comedian Barry Humphreys. Well, today Humphreys announced that Dame Edna is hanging up her wig. The comic says he's retiring the character because he wants her to go out on top. I am a lucky woman because I was born with a priceless gift. What gift is that, Dame Edna, I hear you say? The ability to laugh at the misfortunes of others. <laughs> and that keeps me cheerful 24 hours a day. It does. Humphreys created Dame Edna more than 50 years ago. She was a drab but proper suburban Australian housewife. Over the years, what a dame she became. She evolved into a larger-than-life celebrity, brash and outspoken, with cat-eye glasses and outlandish outfits. There you are, feasting your eyes on a bit of glamour. This little frock, of course, the little smart trendsetters in the audience will be up all night copying, I know that. (laughs) They will be. She went on to host her own talk shows in the 1980s and 90s, where she interviewed the likes of Alec Baldwin, Jaja Gabor, and Charlton Heston. She treated the stars as ordinary people, and ordinary people as celebrities, sort of. Lovely. Look at this little girl in the front row. Where, Where are you from? I'm from Ghana. From Ghana? Yeah. I've never been there, and I don't think I'm ever going to go. <laughs> what is your name? Sharon. <laughs> I'm trying to think, Sharon, of a word to describe what you're wearing. <laughs> Affordable. That's <laughs> Barry Humphrey says even though the time has come to move on, doesn't mean that he's going to forego wearing that lilac wig again. The comic said Dame Edna may still crop up from time to time on TV. Heading right back to our GeoQuiz now and the fate of the ship once sailed by Norwegian polar explorer Roald Amundsen. Almost a century ago, the Maud sank in the waters of Cambridge Bay in northern Canada. Well, now a Canadian court has approved a plan to repatriate the shipwreck back to the place where she was built, Norway. Jan Vongard manages the Mod Returns Home campaign. Well, we are extremely happy now that we have managed to get through this uh, bureaucratic process of gaining an uh, export permit for the old polar ship Mod and go ahead with our project now. So now you have the duty of making sure that this ship gets relocated all the way back to Norway. How are you going to do that? 
Well, first of all, the ship position at the moment is uh, on the sea bed, and uh, it's a quite a challenging operation to try to repatriate more. You mean it's underwater now? Yes, it's uh, laying on the on the seabed under the water, and uh, it's half exposed. And every winter, it's uh, exposed to the tearing of the ice. So it's had uh, quite a hard time the last 80 years since it sank in Cambridge Bay, which is about 2,000 kilometers from the nearest road connection. How are you ever going to resurrect it? We will depart from Norway with a tugboat and a barge, uh, and this will go uh, into the area uh, in the summertime. And this will probably happen in the summer of 2013. But again, how do you get it from there to Norway? Yes, we will uh, have a barge which is submersible, and that means we can put it on the seabed beside the mold, and then we will uh, neutralize the mold from the seabed with uh, air buoyancy, and then we will lift the barge uh, with mold on top. And then we have 7,000 kilometers of transport back to Norway. It's a long way, like three to 4,000 miles all the way back. We really value this ship, and it's an incredibly important part of Norwegian uh, culture history, and we are uh, extremely determined to bring it home uh, in the same condition as it is now laying on the seabed. Maybe you can remind folks listening what the most famous voyage of the Maud was. Maud was built in Askirvollen uh, in Norway uh, by Christian Jensen, and uh, it was built for Roald Amundsen's attempt to reach the North Pole by drifting inside the ice across the North Pole. So basically it was his main attempt to reach the North Pole. This attempt in itself was not successful in the way of reaching the pole, but it was a seven-year expedition in the Arctic, scientific expedition. We are extremely interested in presenting the, the history also from the moment it sank up to today. And where is it going to go in Norway? Well, it's going to go back to the place where it was built uh, in 1917. That is in Volen, uh, outside Oslo. And we have a very strong hope we can open a museum uh, with the boathouse for the 100 years jubilee in uh, 2017. Jan Vongard, he's the project manager of Maud Returns Home. And the Maud will indeed return home sometime next year, coming back to Volen, Norway, which is the answer to our geo-quiz. Very nice to talk to you. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to stay in Norway now for our global hit today. In music, there are genres, subgenres, and sub-subgenres. It's a way for critics and fans to categorize all the different forms of music. And some of the categories can be pretty out there. For instance, the space disco movement. Here's our DJ critic in Norway to fill us in. Hi there. I'm Marius Asp, music journalist at NRK in Oslo, Norway. And I'm here to tell you a bit about what's happening on the Scandinavian and European music scene. A great ambassador for Norwegian electronic music over the past decade has been Hans-Peter Lindström, the leading figure of the so-called space disco movement, which combines hazy, futuristic and floating soundscapes with beats designed for the dance floor. And it's safe to say that the space disco tag no longer covers the many facets of his sound. Check out the pulsating, slowly building opening song, No Release. Listening to No Release, the intro to Lindstrom's brand new album Six Cups of Rebel. And what an album it is. Adventurous and widely eclectic, as the title suggests. He's obviously been listening a lot to his collection of 70s prog rock albums, as well as early 80s electronica and obscure sci-fi soundtracks. However, there's also sonic food for fans of the more dance-oriented parts of Lindstrom's catalogue. 
The most striking example is Deja Vu, a song described by a reviewer as funkadelic going off on an Italo disco bender at a Chicago warehouse party. Hear it for yourself. This is Lindstrom's Deja Vu. striking things about this album are the vocals, all of which belong to Lindstrom himself, but heavily processed and tweaked beyond recognition. Six Cups of Revel aims for the heart of music lovers, not the masses. You should try it out though. Patience and focused listening is required, but it does pay off. Here's a final sample, the song Quiet Place to Live which from what I understand is the only song a certain Mr. Todd Rundgren has ever remixed. This is the original in all its weird glory. Lindstrom, ladies and gentlemen. That's Oslo DJ Marius Ask playing the music of Norwegian electronica artist Lindstrom. That's it for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.